0: everyone welcome back to the show today we are talking to someone that um, i'm really excited to have on the show uh, someone who without knowing has played a huge role in my life and i'm very appreciative of uh, his time today jordan cooper who is the founder and owner of revelation records uh, since 1987 this iconic hardcore music label is known for releases by bands such as youth of today sick of it all chain of strength judge and gorilla biscuits revelation or rev or R on the star uh, has an online store selling all their vinyl merchandise and the go-to place for anything punk and hardcore because it's also a, a major distribute distribution hub of independent music. So with that, Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks. All right. So, uh, you know, in prepping for this conversation, one of the things that I, I loved, like when we first emailed and then also when we had a call, you seemed a little hesitant to, to get on here. And a lot of it was like, I don't know if like Am I right for like a leadership podcast or a business podcast? And I really liked how humble you you are uh, right off the bat. And so I asked a friend of mine, who's a friend of the show, Andrew Klein. I was like, "Hey, what's something fun I could ask Jordan about to start the conversation?" He's like, "Ask him about pizza. He loves pizza." Mm-hmm. So, tell us about your love of pizza.
1: Okay. Well, do you want the whole episode to go right now? Or- <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I just you know grew up in the Northeast and pizza was just there. You didn't have to think about it. Thanks to waves of uh, so, uh, migration from Southern Italy, we had great pizza everywhere. And uh, then when I moved here and I was vegan, it was hard. You know, First of all, I didn't have pizza for a while and I just started making pizza at home. And then eventually I went and visited my family and walked across the street and got a slice of pizza or my brother got a slice of pizza. And I was like, let me just have a bite of that. I miss that stuff, and it was so good. When I came back home, I was like, "I'm not vegan anymore. I'm I'm just going to eat pizza, N- nothing, no other dairy stuff or whatever." And so, a pizzatarian. Uh, yeah, pizzatarian almost. Um, but then there's also burritos now. I, you know, uh, but anyway, uh, it's California. The uh, so it was hard to find good pizza in, in Huntington Beach at that time. So, you know, the first few places I went, I was like, it's pizza, but it's just, it's not good. And I was, I was just always like talking about, I wish I could find a good pizza place. And I would describe it. And, um, uh, my girlfriend at the time worked, I don't know if it was Santa Monica, but there's a publishing company, BMG. Mm -hmm. And they brought in lunch one day from, uh, this, the place that I'm going to go later, Mulberry Street Pizza. And, um, and she's grew up in california so she but she she had heard me complaining so much she was like i bet this is the pizza jordan's talking about this 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 seems like what he is describing <laughs> and um and she told me about it and you know a few months later somehow you know we tried it and i was like you know first of all you know the people are from new york and um and it was perfect and the funny story you know Larry and I've been there a million times and um on their 20th anniversary they put out these pamphlets on the table about the restaurant and um you know I was reading it or Larry was reading it and he's like wait didn't you grow up in Mayapak? and uh, I was like yeah and he's like the owners from mayapac so I grabbed the thing and I looked looked there and he's like his family was you know he's born in the Bronx and then his family moved to this town mayapac mm-hmm. And that's my family story, and probably a lot of people from from the Bronx just moved north up into Putnam County. If you can't afford Westchester, you know Putnam's pretty good. Um, so anyway, the owner is has has eaten at the same went to the same high school as me, ate at the same pizza place as me, and no surprise, he makes pizza exactly the way I like it. You know, which is um, sort of like you know an Americanized Neapolitan style mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I could go on for quite a while if, if you like well <laughs> first of all, I say all like, it's the best
0: start to any interview I've ever done because like you spoke about pizza with the passion and intensity and like the way you told the story was like you were talking about your firstborn child so like well done
1: <laughs> but yeah it's funny that's the one of the things that I was concerned about is like Ray and I have always talked about like what what I he's got everything I lack like you know he's very um conscious and passionate and I'm the opposite you know so it, it's hard to talk about leadership when you know I'm more of like uh water runs downhill kind of person which I mentioned
0: yeah
1: well <clears throat> and so for for the uninitiated people who don't know so if you're talking about Ray you're talking about Ray Ray Capo yeah Ray Capo um, Youth of Today started Revelation Records with me and you know basically Formed Revelation Records.
0: Yeah. And so like uh, in the culture and and I, I know you and I talked about this. Um, people come to this podcast from all sorts of different backgrounds. Like, um, you know, we've got people from the corporate world, people from social services, people from the acting world, the arts, athletes. A lot of different people uh, come listen to the podcast. So some of them are going to know who Ray Capo is. But for the uninitiated, Ray Capo is like a, a really important figure even modern uh, even in current times um in punk and hardcore in terms of like what he brought to the table from bands like Youth of today from bands like shelter better than a thousand and also it's just been like an interesting cat that has done a, a lot of cool things some of of which he got major heat for but we'll talk all about all of that later uh but the two of you have had a
1: very close and long-standing relationship for many years yeah and he has a uh, he has a podcast wisdom of the sages which you know every time i hear hear that it's you know i still it brings me back to what drew me to ray in, in the beginning he's just uh has a way of communicating that you know it reaches me anyway and yeah. obviously a lot of people so where you grew <clears> up <throat> and sorry was it mayo Pack?
0: yeah okay uh small town yeah how did you
1: find punk and hardcore what was the first entry point Um, that's kind of a recently kind of uncovered fun story for me because I never really thought too hard about it. But, um, in an interview with Andrew Klein for his, uh, zine that he did a few years ago, um, he asked me something that made me kind of trace the events and, um, Mayapak is, Mayapak is a town that's roughly a half hour from Danbury, Connecticut, which is where Ray, uh, is from. Both of my parents were teachers. My dad worked for a public school in New York. My mom uh, taught at some schools in New York and then eventually long-term uh, taught at the school that Ray Capo's mom worked at also. So um, before Ray and I met, my mom worked with Ray's mom and they knew each other for years. Um, but so ha- how I-, I heard about hardcore from... Uh, friends in high school. They were in, they were into punk and hardcore when I was into classic rock. Mm-hmm. And you know I, you know they, they played it for me it just you know I was like, I'm staying over here with Pink Floyd and yes, mm-hmm. you guys listen to that, but we're, we're still friends and we're still, you know doing all the mischievous stuff that high school kids in uh, rural towns do. Um, but they would uh, one of the guys in Mayapak Chris Gigler would was um, listening to, and probably all of them listened to this show on K on WXCI, which was from the school that our Ray and, and my mom, Ray's mom and my mom worked at. It was a high school radio show. No, it was a college, okay. uh, West Western Connecticut State College at the time, University now, um, college radio station, um, and Ray had a show on there. And I forget it's called, like, Something Jukebox. Um, and Daryl Ort and Ray did the did a I thought it was Daryl Ort's show, and Ray helped DJ sometimes. But um, Chris Chris and his friends would, you know, somehow, like, tilt the radios just the right way on, on a certain time. And I don't know how they found out about it, but they listened to this show. And, and so they were they were telling me, like, we like punk, but there's this kind of punk called hardcore that you know, you're going to love, you know, it's, it's, it's way better. It's way, way faster. I don't know what they said, but that was what they really loved. And, you know, I just, it, it what, you know, I just, uh, the way hardcore was presented to me by other people in my school, um, it just didn't appeal to me because it was like, isn't this funny? Isn't this crazy? Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever reason at the time, I was like, you know, music should be serious is the way I was thinking my family moved to. Danbury so my mom could be closer to her work Um, my father had died you know a few years earlier and so there's no reason to stay where we were and um, so we moved to Connecticut and in high school I met Ray and he was not um, content with me just like not listening to her you know like (laughs) You can't know about hardcore and not love hardcore. Let me explain. Let me tell it. Let me play you the stuff that is going to convert you. And, you know, I still to this day, I don't know if I became a fan of Ray enough to like hardcore or if he just played the the right music for me. But anyway, I became a devotee of both or a fan of both, you know. So (coughs) when you were younger and you were listening to like, you know, Yes and, and all those bands,
0: were you into music or was it just like oh yeah you listen to music
1: i i don't i think in general music was a you know at that time in that environment i think music was part of your identity even if you weren't into punk at least for a lot of people like maybe if you were into sports or whatever um what were the th- there was kind of freaks geeks and you know we had burnouts and jocks and there's and and nerds you know that was our that was our the three divisions in our high school but you know if you had something in your life um other than music maybe that was what you were into but for for my friends and I it was pretty much music and you know maybe a little bit cars and you know typical redneck stuff yeah were you into skateboarding not until i met ray okay i mean i had a skateboard when i was in junior high and we you know we just we lived in cold mount you know mountainy environment there were skateboarding was not you could ride down a hill and kill yourself mm-hmm. so most of the stuff we did on a skateboard was just kind of messing around right. um you know two people sit on the skateboard and go down the hill and. You know, hopefully, you don't lose too much skin at the end, you know, that kind of thing.
0: So you and Ray uh, meet, and it's life changing. Eventually, yeah. You know, you've talked to me a bit about, and I've also read in uh, zines and uh, in books that you've been uh, a book you were interviewed in about that relationship um, and what it's meant to you. But if you were to just take a guess,
1: like what you found in Ray is like you
0: articulated pretty well. What did Ray find in you?
1: Um, I, I mean I don't know I, you know everybody finds a way to c- connect and Ray I think silliness like humor and and uh, was our like the, the the bottom you know the foundation of our friendship like we both could look at a situation and find the humor and, and Ray can do that with anybody I don't know if you know him well but you know if, you, if you're just hanging around with him one-on-one he is very good at Uh, finding your point of like finding your thought and like understanding it and like enjoying it, you know, like he's a great communicator, I think, Mm -hmm. um, and a a great listener. Mm -hmm. And I think that was uh, one of the things that uh, clicked for me. But I think he, he's pretty good at making, everybody is like considers Ray their best friend, but he's got a million best friends. And I've kind of always been drawn to people like that, like these, hub type people mm-hmm. and you know it's you know it's a win-lose because it's sort of it can be one-sided and then often you'll you know i've noticed throughout my life like i i, I introduced two people that i consider like my be- this is my my best friend and interview my uh, you know introduce them to to my other really close friend and then like all of a sudden they're you know better friends because oh, yeah. they're just you know more awake You know, conscious people, and that's just the way things go.
0: Um,
1: But anyway, uh, I I think that answers the question. So, uh,
0: this may surprise you. I've never met Ray Capo. Uh, Oh, you got to have him on here. Well, I, yes. uh, I can just tell you about my brush with Ray Capo. Okay. (laughs) He unintentionally stole my donuts. I was at a music fest that uh, Youth of Today was playing, and I was on one side of the pit, and my donuts were on the other side of the pit, being held by my. Dear friend, one of my closest friends, Trey, and Trey sends me a text. He's like, Hey man, I got your donut. I got donuts for you, you know, from the place vegan donuts. And I was like, I love donuts. I was like, I can't wait. I get to watch Youth of Today and then I get to have vegan donuts. This is perfect. This is great. Watching Youth of Today played a great set. It was before they reunited with Walter and Sammy. So it was definitely a cool show, but I haven't seen them with Walter and Sammy yet, which I'm very excited to see at some point. Anyways, they're great. They're awesome after the show i ended up engaged like doing a couple things i didn't get a chance to go over and uh i send trey a text i was like hey i'll be over to get my donuts and he's like sorry they're gone good story and i was like what so i march (laughs) i march over and i thought trey just ate my donuts and he's laughing as i come up and i was like why are you laughing what did you do and he was like it's not what i did it's what ray capo did he's like ray capo came up to say hello and I had this box of donuts and I said, hey, Ray, would you like a donut? Because I thought you'd like Ray to have a donut. I was like, of course, I'd want Ray to have a donut. And he's like, well, Ray instantly went, hey, kids, donuts, and invited his flock of children to come over and they took all of the donuts. And I was like, why didn't you stop them? He's like, I'm not going to say no to a kid who wants a donut. Yeah. And I was like, "Cabo, you stole my donuts. At least I owe him for all the all the great things he's done for us culturally. But that's been my only interaction with Ray Capo. Uh, I look forward to having him on the show. But let's go back to you, man.
1: Um, yeah, Ray, Ray, losing food or clothes to Ray is probably not... Uh, you're not alone, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually have collected a few other donut
0: stories about Ray Capo. When I tell this story, wow. I've had a couple of people be like, actually, I have a donut story about Ray Capo, too. Amazing. <laughs> all let right, right, let's, uh, let's go back to you, though, man. So you get into this... This space with with ray and you're learning about this scene a lot of people get into punk and hardcore because something's missing in their life or something happened in their life so like as i told you when i was young like i was bullied a lot when i was a kid i uh, my parents uh come from an ethnically mixed mixed marriage my father's armenian my mom's irish like there's a lot of cultural differences created a lot of like chaos in their family uh um, circle and then like where i grew up i grew up in calgary where it's like Nobody's named a Ram. So like I grew up people calling my family like terrorists and like we're bullied a ton. So skateboarding became like part of my identity from skateboarding came punk and hardcore. That's how I got into it. And that's why I think it's had such a, like a meaningful place in my life. It's been like kind of an anchor for me for better or for worse, because there's a lot of there's so many good things and there's a lot of negative things, too, that could be associated with it. Did punk and hardcore like fill something for you or was it simply just like a social activity with your friends?
1: Um, well, I guess both, um, you know, like a lot of kids, you you know, you have anger and, you know, depending on your personality type, your anger gets expressed or, or released in, um, healthy or unhealthy ways. So hardcore is very useful for, you know, expressing aggression and anger and that kind of emotion. But also, yeah, I, uh, I was um, a new kid in a big high school in my senior year, having had kind of a rough several years prior to that. You know, I um, went to four different high schools um, and being a senior at, at Danbury High, I was like pretty isolated, like friends from my neighborhood. And um, I mean, I didn't really relate totally to them. There's you know, fairly segregated high school and Ray just sort of um, was good at finding people who, you know, needed help or were adrift. And I think he just, you know, saw an anarchy symbol on my book and was like, uh, uh, this this guy's mine now. You know, (laughs) he just sort of brought me to the anthrax and was, you know, introduced me to everyone. and, And that was, so it was... Not just like social, it was um, was, kind of like lifted me out of uh, several year um, funk I was in and really kind of changed the direction of my life kind of almost back to where where I might have been when I was 11 or something, you know, definitely more um, confidence and all that. So he, he kind of let you he kind of helped you do a reset to like an earlier time in your
0: life, like yeah finding yourself again,
1: uh-huh and maybe not so much myself, but like a new, maybe a new identity moving to Danbury was what, even though I was on board with the concept when it actually happened, I was um, just you know make your way in a new school um, So the anthrax and again for the
0: for people who wouldn't have the history on punk and hardcore is is very at least famous to us. Uh, punk club in Connecticut so Ray takes you to the anthrax introduces you to everyone so who do you meet in that like and any like any name it matters it doesn't matter if it's like a historical name but who was your who are the core people that he introduced you to
1: yeah I, it's funny because, like I never thought of myself as so um tunnel vision with uh hardcore but at this point yeah it's all I it's been my life for so long like if you don't know what the anthrax is I can't talk to you, like or something. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, you know, he was he was popular in high school. He was popular. You know, he had friends everywhere. So he good friends with Sean and Brian, who ran the Anthrax. Um, you know, they're like he was like their annoying little brother. You know, but they loved him, and uh, so. You know, in our high school, Ray's friends were in his band at the time, Violent Children, which is, would be Dave Rinelli, uh, Chris Getz, and um, Warren Kennedy who was not in that high school. But, um, but you know, uh, Purcell obviously was going to the anthrax. He lived in New York State just over the line from where... Uh, where I lived he was my close friend and you know I I became friends with a lot of the people that he, that he knew but I don't really remember a lot of specific names other than mm-hmm. people that nobody would know like you know Carla Gell, who was in CoC for a while you know if you follow music at all and you know he knew everybody and he introduced me to everybody and they may or may not remember me you know right. so you're in this space, you develop
0: like this new new group of friends. It kind of gives you a new, a new start, essentially. And it helps you find like a new version of yourself. As a guy that grew up, like, yeah, you liked music. Music was a part of, like, I think it is part of most young people's lives, but you weren't like necessarily deeply passionate. You're not like, I'm gonna run a record label someday, or I'm gonna be part of that industry. You just liked music. But then that interesting space where like, Music can be music, but most music, if not all music, often has a culture associated with it. And you went from being like a fan of music to being immersed in like a music culture, like a subculture specifically. And you kind of found your people in there.
1: Wouldn't go that far, but yeah, I I, I loved it. And I remember the first couple of times I went, I felt like I was... um, watching an episode of Gilligan's Island or something where they, where they like peek through the bushes and they see the, the, you know, quote unquote natives doing a dance, you know, cause like the, the circle pit dance is like, so uh, primal. Hey. Um, I, it felt really alien to me in a lot of ways. Um, but um, so, something about it was, was appealing, yeah. you know, and I, I think more the performance and the music aspect of it than the, dance you know ritualized dancing and i definitely never and it's funny because i thought of ray as like anti-fashion but you know the whole anti-fashion thing was um kind of became its own fashion like the 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 dys uh dress code or something but you know i didn't that was a part of punk that never appealed to me um and actually in fifth grade i wrote a book report on punk you know, just because I liked music enough that I read, basically copied an article about punk, where they were describing it as like harder than hard rock, and that was um, that was my early early understanding of of bands like the Ramones and those kind of that era. Right.
0: So like, it wasn't like you were like a duck to water off the bat. You weren't like, no, oh, this is like I had said earlier, these are my people. And you're like, ah, not quite. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's not like duck to water, but it was enough. And you at least were connected to the people enough that you were like, yeah, I'll, like, I'll partake. I'll be a
1: part of this. Yeah. And I, I, I did love, you know, like music kind of got off of that. But music, even when I was like just reading the the lyrics on a Black Sabbath record, it was like, you know, your music was sort of like your identity, like the bands you liked, you know, like uh, in, in I didn't do this, but in high school, you would see like Black Sabbath carved into a cr- like the shape of a cross on a desk or Led Zeppelin, like the logo, like that's what kids like associated themselves with. I didn't just drop listening to, you know, Rush or whatever, but I. I punk definitely eclipsed a lot of it. Listen, as the (coughs) Canadian representative in this room, if you'd stopped listening to Rush, I would have been really upset, like really deeply offended. I was happy way late in life to find out two fun facts about Rush. YYZ is the initials of the Toronto airport. Mm -hmm. And uh, Getty's name is actually Gary, but his mom, you know, has a Polish accent or something. So she can't pronounce Gary. So they call him, you know, his friend's. Called him what his mom called him. <laughs> so you're still a fan of Rush today, I guess. Oh, I love. Yeah, I mean, good man. they just seem like uh, funny, good. You know, yeah. they uh, just watch the documentary. You got, you, you can't not like them. And I, I, first of all, I love Rush. Being a Canadian, I think it's like not every Canadian likes
0: Rush, but I certainly like Rush. It's cool that you like them. Uh, I always am interested in Neil Pert because he's like super, like ultra genius, crazy musician guy, but has that thing that some ultra musicians have where there's just like the way they express their humanity is through music and then outside of that they're kind of like pretty difficult to deal with or pretty cold or pretty blank and you know Pert was uh was an interesting cat for sure
1: yeah i don't know a ton about him you know it's kind of he's he's he he's said enough about himself i don't need yeah. to comment but yeah he's definitely interesting and I, I, I remember this uh they when they got inducted into the hall of fame um Alex Lifeson did the blah 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 speech uh, and it was so funny to like uh to, at least in my head I feel like I was following along with what he was talking about <laughs> even though the only word he said was blah like okay I must be I'm either this is I'm imagining this or he's, he's actually telling a story here <laughs>
0: right, right. <laughs> Um, everyone, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about Rush, just so you know. Um, okay, let's go back to the story, though. At what point does Revelation even, and I know that wasn't the name initially, but what did? at what point did the idea of doing a
1: record label come up with, with you and Ray? Um, I actually, yeah, it, probably not long before it happened. Ray had done... His own label put out the violent children record and he did a zine called Cud, maybe. No, that might be Jeff Roberts magazine Yoke, I think was Ray's uh fanzine. But anyway, Ray did all this stuff. He is he had had a band. I tried out for uh, one of his bands when they lost a guitar player. So anyway, I was always looking for something to do. Mm. And, uh, I think part of it was like Ray helping me find something to do and, you know, it served a need and that's how that came, came together. Okay. This is like where the story for me becomes
0: real interesting because you didn't like your life goal wasn't to be a musician or to run a record label, right?
1: I would have loved to be a musician, you know, but it's just, I didn't have the, the, discipline or the you know the iq for memorizing um it's it's actually I, I don't know how people remember hundreds like how does walter know all those words and all the goods like how do people do that i don't know it's magic
0: well but also there's only one walter right there's right
1: and i'm sure like anytime that like walter- but you were in a band you had to remember 20 songs i don't know you were in a bunch of bands how do do you in theory theory? i remember these in a live
0: setting nobody knows if you remember in the words you just hand them the microphone
1: (laughs) i've heard that
0: i'm gonna go ahead and say like i don't like if you put me to like a pressure test right now or like recite like three of your own songs there's there's not a good chance i'd be able to do that wow
1: well then i guess ozzy there's a live record where ozzy gets the lyrics you know, one of the verses he repeats, gets it wrong on one of those live uh, Black Sabbath records. Well, like so I uh, guess not everybody is Walter.
0: Not everybody <laughs> is Walter. And I'd say like what musicians can remember is, I think, like a relatively like questionable <laughs> thing. Musicianship for me or like good memories or any of that stuff is not totally unnecessary to be a musician. I think a musician is just a good a good musician is someone who is either got vision and knows how to make it happen or someone who can help someone else execute on their vision like walter's kind of that whole package in terms of he's got incredible vision and he's a great player he knows how to play um, very well Um, but there are people like you need someone who even if you're a great musician you need someone who can execute on it who can do it for you and like i'll give you an example i'm a terrible guitar player but i've played guitar in a ton of bands i always surround myself with way better musicians because i know how to write a song I just can't play everything that i can write so musicianship i think is a, it's almost more like um you got to get right on the show he's sort of the same yeah well it's, it's around it's about surrounding yourself with the right people and figuring stuff out and there are people like walter who do have the whole package Well, let's so you didn't start a band or you didn't join a band or or do it because it just it seemed like you tried it and it didn't work or you didn't really pursue it too much um maybe both mm-hmm. So what did you want to do when you were in high school and you're like, Hey, this is what I want to do for a living growing up. Like, did you have any thoughts on it? Um,
1: No, I I mean, yes and no. I think I was like, you know, when you're a kid and you look at the world and everything is so arbitrary and stupid. um, I just wanted to, you know, be a counterforce to that. Like, I'd like to destroy the world, you know, or like uh, just be a constant um, wrench in the machinery of this stupid system that developed that that our parents are, you know, playing along with. Mm Um, so I didn't you know I was like what can I do you know I'm gonna go to jail you know I don't I don't know what I'm what I want to do and also the you know the culture I can't you know the suburban culture was kind of um, and maybe it's American culture is very anti um, there, there's a strong in, in, in at least in the school that I went to there's a strong anti-success anti-intellectual and You know, negative kind of, um, you know, destructive behavior kind of was a big thing. You know, that's why a lot of people were drinking and, you know, destructive drug use and things like that. Um, So I didn't really have uh, an idea of what I wanted to do. I I actually, when I had my first job was washing dishes at a restaurant and, and I asked my mom, can I just move in here? Because um, they had they had um, people living in the restaurant that worked there, just upstairs, and you could live there for free if you worked there. I was like, "Can I just move in here?" And uh, you guys moved to Connecticut, um, and that obviously didn't go. Thankfully, didn't happen. But I, yes, I had no. My plan was just day to day. I didn't. I didn't have any vision about the future. Even when we started the label. You know, Ray was talking about doing a compilation and I was like, oh, we're not just doing the Warzone. We're doing another record, too. Okay, so. All right. So you do the record, the
0: first record, Warzone. And uh, of course, we want to mention Ray, um, uh, Rabies. Uh, Thank you so much for everything you did and, you know, never forgotten.
1: So you do the Warzone 7-inch and Canadian uh, has emailed me recently about doing a documentary about Rabies. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Very persistent uh, guy. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he goes by O. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, we will see. He's, he's trying to get in touch with everybody. So that's awesome. I, I emailed Roger Moret to see if he wants to start there. Yeah. That's awesome. And I hope that happens. Um, so you do the first record. <laughs> was it a slow burn or was it an instant success? Instant. Yeah. yeah, like anything Ray Capo touched yeah. was pretty good, and then just hardcore was, th- you know, n- thanks to bands like Ver- Verbal Assault and Youth of Today, kind of bridging from Revolution Summer to you know the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Hard, you know, hardcore had int- a lot of interest, at least on our level. So, uh, you know, you put a picture of Ray Bees with a microphone in the ad um people ordered the record
0: yeah so that first record totally takes off and you guys start doing more records
1: yeah and R- R- ray recruited everybody like uh on the Warzone b-side label richie birkenhead drew the artwork for that and um mutual friend jim martin did the lettering for the original labels which didn't get used and then He did the lettering for the wars on cover. He actually did the cover for the youth of today, seven inch, um, which was originally going to be called crucial times. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that art? No, I haven't seen it. It's great. He, you know, Jim Martin's a a great artist. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's got, um, Freddie Alva has a, a book out of his, some of his art and I, or I think maybe he put out his own book too, but he did a lot of flyers for the anthrax, really intricate drawings and he's got a really cool style. So the label
0: grows fast.
1: Yeah, we had serial seven-inch releases, just like, you know, Warzone and the the Together comp, then uh, Sick of It All, then Gorilla Biscuits, and then you know we just kept putting out seven inches, and that was. uh, Ray was kind of uh, a big uh, was a big fan of, Discord and um, Danger House Touch and Go, so he loved seven inches and he loved the Devo seven inches. I don't know if you remember, they had a lot of really cool art and packaging on their records. And, um, that was, I, Ray's vision was like a lot of really cool singles. Yeah. At what point though does Ray leave? That was quite a bit, a few years later, a couple of years later. Um, when he, I th- and this might tie into when his father died and I, he he talks about it in interviews a lot but um i never really put it together so much but um i think that got him may have motivated the move towards spiritual life or whatever and um so i think that was around 89 um he's you know moved into the temple and got krishna full-time and um He wrote that last, Youth of Today, 7-Inch, which is sort of has a lot of shelter kind of uh, inspired lyrics. And he wrote this shelter record maybe even before that. Um, So that was around the time he was kind of drifting away from hardcore. And um, I remember one time, um, and... and uh, we, we went to New York um, from New Haven. He lived in New York at the time. Um, we, we both went to the same school in, you know, we went to the same high school and then we went to the same college for a year. Mm-hmm. And then he dropped out, moved to New York to do Youth of Today full time. And, well, odd jobs and really focus on Youth of Today. So anyway, um, a friend and I went to New York to spend the day with Ray and we were just doing like kind of midtown touristy things and Ray uh, was just totally distant the whole day like you know and I think it might looking back it might have had something to do with his father dying mm-hmm. r- relatively recently or hit, it really affecting him at that point and I would guess that that was probably in 88. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think he might have even been crying for some of the day. And uh, I think that was, like, he was having, like, a moment of realization, like, looking at my friends doing this, like, pointless, shallow, like, uh, walking around New York laughing at stuff or just looking at stuff and, and not really having any focus or direction. And... I think that may you know and and just seeing just society like uh you know he he had a moment like and it wasn't like I really witnessed it because he didn't talk about it but I saw him kind of like withdraw and at one at one point we just like we look around and Ray's gone you know he just was like left so I think he was you know he went through something you know he had an awakening of some sort and I'm not saying that I witnessed that moment, but I think there was a period in his life where he probably looked at a lot of things and was disillusioned with everything that was going on, whether it was in his band or his life or the world in general. And he just was like, you know, I need the shelter of, you know, his, you know, of God and everything that he uh, pursued. So. Um, he moved into the temple and I I would visit him once a week and, um, and yeah, I don't remember the exact sequence of of events, but, um, at some point I quit my job to do the label full-time and I was like, well, Ray, this is going to be my full-time job. So this has got to be my thing. Like, so we settled up on some, you know, the business and the, the label became mine. Is that, is that what you were asking me? Yeah. Yeah. So this happened at the Christian temple though. Um, it probably happened over the phone or while we were in New Haven uh, for some reason. I don't remember exactly when. And, where. and he was totally like amiable to it. Like, yeah, that's a good thing. Let's yeah. Well also I had been, you know, he'd been doing Ether today full time for the whole time. And I was doing the label pretty much on my own with just like, you're doing this you know here's here's the next record or here's this record and uh, apparently i don't i didn't remember this but apparently there are some records that i arranged and some that he arranged but i remembered it as he set everything up right but um i've been told otherwise just by him and other people do you know what record that
0: you guys parted ways on the on the label
1: i think it was the let's see it would have been after chain of strength so probably the bold seven inch okay was the last, you know, I, probably the last record that, uh, or the first record that Ray wasn't in charge of. Yeah. Um, and again, for people who don't, who wouldn't know about
0: Revelation, and if you don't, I really encourage you to look it up. Even if you don't like, you know, like punk or hardcore, there's a lot of stuff on the label that's just super cool, spans a lot of different kinds of um, styles. And again, if you're someone who comes from like Maybe, you know, you like things that have have an edge, but aren't like ultra aggressive, maybe check out a band like Texas The Reason. If you're some the little things that are a little bit more punk, ch- check out a band like the Nerve Agents, like there's a lot of cool um, uh, records on this label. But the, this time frame that you're talking about is where some of, but not all of like what would be considered like the early rev classics get released and they're just like, boom, record after record after record, hugely impactful, create a whole culture. Across the country, of people that are like, oh, yeah, this is it. And of course, some of that had been started by, of course, Discord Records, but a lot of people involved in Discord had kind of like matured into, like, as you said, like Rev Summer stuff. And they'd gone on to found what would be their early ideas of what emo essentially started becoming. And then, of course, there's Wishing Well Records, who I know had some. Um, connection to Rev uh, for reasons we don't need to go into. Anyone who's a fan of the culture would know, but we can't uh, um, diminish their importance, but Rev really created, I guess, like maybe the next wave of hardcore and certainly created like a very specific kind of culture. So if I just frame it up and I don't want to put words in your mouth without intending to, you suddenly found yourself at the center running a record label that had a ton of attention, a ton of focus, and was really part of like building culture. And you suddenly lost the one guy who'd kind of been like the visionary of, of the group, and you had to make a decision whether or not you kept doing it. Was that decision purely like, well, now this is my job. So is it like more like, well, I, I guess I'll do this. this. is how I make money. Or was it like, no, I want to do this because I actually care about doing this?
1: Um, I, I don't remember it being too conscious. Uh-huh. But it was like, you know, I've got all these plates in the air. This is what I, you know, like I care about this plate a lot, this plate, you know, half as much, you know, like that's kind of, uh, it was my life. Yeah. So I didn't really look at it as a cohesive thing. I looked at it as, well, you know, I got this record coming the quicksand, you know, I don't remember it what specific. Con- it wasn't a conscious decision. No, like I said, I, I've never been one for planning or awareness or anything like that, you know. Yeah, you are just, you were, you were doing this, I don't want to say hardcore, but
0: this record label had become your life. And so you just were like, okay, things are simplified now. I'm just going to keep moving forward.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I just kept moving forward. I didn't really think about or look about, uh, think about the future particularly. Um, how old were you at this point? Um... I think I was 20 when I started it, so it might have been 22 or 23. Okay, so you're 23 years old. You're running a
0: record label that had made a huge impact in North America, and, and definitely at that point had done some like international stuff. Youth Today had gone to Europe. You had gone to Europe, so you could see the impact there. Were you nervous at all to take the
1: helm on your own, or were you yeah. just a yeah, yeah? I mean, I, I, I probably wondered if it would even keep going you know like (laughs) because like to me revelation was huge because ray and youth of today were in this universe to me ray and youth of today were you know the leader you know like to me um i know there was other you know like it probably doesn't look that way to you know people that are in sick of it all are friends with them but to me ray was like the guy you know he was in charge of the label this whole you know, Ray made all this happen, you know, at least in my life. Um, and without him, I, I I, don't think, I think I probably thought, there's no way this is going to work, you know, like, uh, this is over now. I just got to, like, you know, make this record come out and, and that record come out. And, um, and I actually remember, I think I must have asked Walter and his brother Dylan and Purcell, like, yeah, what what should I do, you know, or what should we do, you know? It was uh, Rev was kind of also like just part of the community that the bands were all a part of. So it was it was a little bit of uh, yeah, what are we going to do without Ray? And they were everyone was worried about what, what you know well, what are we going to do without Ray? Because you know at the time there weren't a lot of people that we knew that were in the temple. You know, we, he, I think he's the first hardcore person that i know that like moved into the temple right yeah uh that's pretty serious yeah. you know we were like is this is this a cult are they stealing ray yeah. and um those were a lot of the thoughts that i remember um the hardcore universe that that revelation started in was our was maybe not because ray was doing shelter and other stuff but it was changing too it was like there was sort of a revolution, not summer, but maybe a, a two year or three year revolution where um, burn and and quicksand and um, inside out were were kind of forming and, and doing you know they're branching the style out um, from the very you know sort of rigid hardcore definition that uh, Ray and Purcell were we're doing with you today. So Actually, um, could, could we just hit on that for a second? Sure. That
0: to me is like, I, I mean, obviously I'm so much of, of my life has been so impacted by by Revelation and of course, like Discord and all, all these record labels, but I'd say Rev was like, it was the record label that made me feel like a, I as a kid could do something because it was like, oh, these are just like kids like they're they're roughly my age, like a little bit older than me, like you're you're older than me, but not by a ton. So it was like a record label like Rev, but then also things that were somewhat local to me, I grew up in Calgary, um, there was a record label called Excursion Records that was in Seattle that put out the Undertow record. And like, Is that Ron? Uh, well, Ron helped because I'm going to bring up Ron in a second. But okay, Ron, um, Ron helped Dave and Dave is my best friend. Dave okay, Larson. Dave,
1: I, yeah. Dave Larson. Okay, yeah. that's uh, my memory is terrible. So I, I I think I know Dave. Yeah. Well, um, you definitely know Dave. I probably know Dave better than I knew Ron, um, and I, ha- I haven't talked to Dave since the 80s probably, but anyway, I'll let you continue. Um, so Rev made me feel like kids kids could do it, uh,
0: kids my age could do it and could do things. And it's not like growing up in Calgary, um, there w- there was a tradition of really cool Calgary, kind of like thrash crossover bands and punk bands, but there wasn't like hardcore, hardcore, hardcore bands. And I think the bands that my friends and I started were the first of that, and we were awful like terrible but um we were really influenced by what was happening on revelation and we were inspired also by what was happening with like in seattle with like undertow and then later on with bands like strain suddenly i felt like i had this group of mentors that i didn't know but were like being like oh yeah of course you can do that and, and here's how we did it and it seemed more accessible than something like discord which of course was still doing records but they were off at that point like fugazi was a thing and it was just uh, it seemed It seemed almost like too intellectual to me and too like it was inescapably
1: mature for me at that point because i was a little kid i hear you and um when we made a dumb joke about that in the first crisis (laughs) crisis records ad um just like uh, one of the lines was new discord stuff too weird for you and and we used the uh acdc powerage font for the word weird um i just thought the, any chance I, I have to use that font, I, I grab it. Oh, um, yes. But just to, to um, put things into perspective for people that don't know much about hardcore, Revelation was not unique at all. There was, other than the fact that it was sort of in the unbelievably lucky fertile ground of Youth of Today, Warzone, and Gorilla Biscuits, there was, you know, smorgasbord records and um, tons of labels that were out at the same time and before us, and everybody, you know, you could you could have a label, you could have a magazine. Everybody that was kind of doing your own band, doing your own label, doing your own magazine or radio show. All that stuff was part of punk culture. Do it yourself. This that's you know, Discord was. Uh, an early example of that but every label was was like that and there were you know icons like sst uh, alternative tentacles and hundreds of others and then there were our friends that all had their own labels like schism smorgasbord and um i'm sure somebody in verbal assault had a label and every town had you had to have a label to put out your your band or your friend's band so revelation was sort of a little bit more of a, a second generation None of that because Ray had been in, um, violent children and, and reflex from pain and maybe other bands and and he'd been through the process a few times so he knew what you know he knew what to do and he had an agenda and yeah. it worked out well. It, it's
0: just such a cool. <clears throat> it's cool for me to be having this conversation with you and digging into a into this part specifically because like the this next kind of phase of Reb where it's like he's no longer involved. Um, I think some of the coolest records that ever came out in Rev started here, right? Like some of the things that were like really pushing and changing. And it's like, I, I like how you yeah. phrase it. It wasn't exactly a revolution summer type moment, but it was a revolution. It was like a, different things were entering. So Ray now is departed. You're leading the, the ship at this point. Are you the, are you, you were, I would assume employee one of Rev. You were the first person who was solely drawing their um, living off
1: of Rev. Is that correct? Yeah. So who was employee two? Um, maybe Craig Calaruso. I, I don't remember, but people came and helped. Well, people volunteered. Like I, um, do you know Mark mm-hmm. Um He was in a band called Betray. Mm-hmm. So, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. Uh-oh. Present tense, uh-oh. or what is it? Is that infinitive? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and uh, he he helped out a lot when, when he would visit, and then just friends would come over and fold envelopes and, Uh, you know, fold covers, all that stuff, Um, stuff records. Um, Employees, I can't remember if, so just trying to think back to who was actually a paid employee. Um, John Munera, who was in Seizure. Um, F. Scott, who was in Slipknot. Craig Calaruso, who... Was in a lot of bands, ran a label called Mud Industries, and was a great artist. Um, and uh, Rich Salvagno, who was in Contraband and Onion. Mm-hmm. Those were the first people that worked there that I remember. Okay, so
0: Ray has split. Now it's the next. It's the oh. next chapter. Let's just say, for loosely, for our conversation. Were there already people working at Rev or when you made the decision of like I'm just gonna carry on, was it still just like you, you doing it all? Yeah, it was just me. Okay. How okay. did those next releases come up? Were they already like, hey, we're gonna do this, or were the bands coming and bring you records, or were you saying, going to people, I wanna do your record? Uh
1: it's I I think a lot of the stuff was already kind of on the calendar. Like Judge was happening and you know, they they put out their first record self released on Schism. And um And then I don't remember how or why, but we got to do their album. And so there was a lot of things that kind of just fell into our lap because Walter's doing a new band and, you know, do you want to put it out? Yes, of course. Um, Inside Out was um, Mark Hayworth played bass in, you know, Mark Hayworth and Rob Hayworth were friends with Walter and, and everyone from when the New York bands would go out to California. Mm -hmm. So that's how they heard about Inside Out. And I think Mark actually made a tape of Hard Stance, Inside Out, no, Inside Out came out a different time. Anyway, Mark Hayworth was sending tapes to Walter, Mm -hmm. um, like check out these bands. And so that's probably how we heard about Inside Out. And uh, anyway, I useful answer to this question would be a lot of it sort of was the same people that were in the bands earlier formed new bands Mm -hmm. Um, and then and Purcell and Walter and Dylan were also involved and and other people were helping um, suggest things that we should do so at what
0: point do you start hiring people on like actually like building out a company and again, for everyone listening who's not uh, part of Punk and Hardcore, the idea like your friends would come over on a Saturday and spend their whole Saturday folding record covers might seem totally alien to someone else. But to us, it's like, well, of course they would do that to your friends. And I used to run a label when I was younger. And my friend, Bob, who uh, Bob, I love you. Thank you so much for all you did. One day he said to me, you know, Aram, there's nobody else that I know that I would go and spend my entire Saturday on a beautiful Saturday day all day in a basement or in like a windowless room folding record covers and watching curb your enthusiasm and and eating okay pizza. But I leave here after eight hours of this unpaid labor and I feel great. And I had such a great time. He was like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a commentary on my character or if it's commentary on what you're doing, but I I love it. I love doing this. And when I was running a label, that idea that people would just show up and help was so part of it until it got to a point where it's like, you know, I actually need people here and you have to start hiring people. And I remember when I first started doing that, I was like, I don't want to do that. It's going to change everything. And I'm scared. And and it, it actually ended up being, being fine. But um, it was a huge, scary commitment. So for you, when you started hiring people, again, you'd said, like, I don't really, I didn't really think things
1: through. It just kind of happened. But do you know when you started hiring people? Yeah. And as soon as we had too much for me to do by myself. Yeah. Well, but your friends were helping you, you're, you're saying? Well, that was more just like helping assemble records. Nobody was happy to, ha- I mean, I don't remember people volunteering to like open, you know, answer mail, pack orders and ship boxes. You know, that that's something I would usually have to pay people to do or, you know, employees or I would do it myself. Around what release was this that you, that you started hiring someone? um just in general i don't remember but definitely by 89 88 89 yeah um and then when i went on tour with youth of today um i just sort of handed the label to a friend of mine and he just ran it while i was gone like just ship all the orders and hopefully he did it right you know i've heard you know i'm slow and meticulous so I, I, I like to think I don't miss shit. Like if somebody orders one thing, I don't ship them the other thing. But I've heard plenty of stories like, I ordered this record, but they, they sent me a different one. So maybe that was Brian. I don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or it <laughs> could have been. Uh, and then there's sometimes if we're out of something, we're out of this. Hope you like this. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so at some point you start hiring people. And one of the things you said to me uh, a couple of times
0: when we've been warming up for this was like, yeah, I don't really consider myself a leader. But I mean, you're running a record label and that record label is serving a community of friends. Like you're, and like, I like how you said earlier, every town kind of had to have its record label rev just happened to be in very fertile soil with just the right people at the right time. Um, but suddenly you've got a responsibility to these people and suddenly you have employees. So by definition, like you're either a manager, like I'm just kind of managing this stuff or you're a leader and you're like, Okay, I'm going to choose to take the wheel here and I'm going to lead us in a direction. I don't want to say that you're one or the other and that there was that thought process, but at that point you clearly had some kind of responsibility to, to, to take on the next steps. and You were very young.
1: So how did you learn how to do it to lead people like that? I mean, people people know how to, you know, like just you learn how to do stuff. So it wasn't the work led us, you right. know, like Somebody sent us a letter. They told us they want this. They put in this amount of money. Uh-huh. We have to. That's that's our job today. You mm-hmm. know, like that. And or a, a store called us and they said we want you know fifty, whatevers. You know, and that was the work was was our manager really. I think and you know, I was just like, can you help me do this that I'm doing? Like watch what I do and then do it. You know, and that's what that's kind of all we did was answer mail and and um you know pack orders i I remember we were all just in one room um and john munero would (laughs) you know um he would he would come up with a funny name for every store like this sounds like this and he would you know anytime he would say something we'd write it on the wall like uh the nickname for the store and and now um he doesn't he works from home tom works from home now but when he worked in the office, he would, he would come up with these insane, uh, puns that were, I would always just write them down when, when he would say them. But that, that was the kind of, uh, atmosphere, just like we're, we're all just getting, getting boxes out the door. Yeah. Um, sorry, that, that didn't really make a whole lot of sense, Dude, but, you, um, you, you said the coolest thing, which was the let the work led us. And I
0: think that that's, that's perfect. Um, Can I bring in a Ron Gardapi story here? Yeah. Um, So, uh, again, you know, our always thank you, Ron, for everything you did. Uh, Always remembered. Um, Ron passed in the past few years and it's a huge loss for uh, a ton of people. So, thanks, Ron. Um, So, Ron told, I hear this story like secondhand from Dave Larson. He's like, man, Ron told me this story. He went, he did this East Coast trip out to like, you know, it was like kind of like the East Coast, like, fantasy world trip where you like go out and you go to the anthrax, you go check out all these things. And he went and stayed with with Jordan. And J- he was like, hey, Jordan, like, you know, do you have any rev rarities around? And you're like, yeah, they're up in my attic. And Ron was like, dude, it's like, unbelievably hot outside. It's got to be so crazy hot in your attic. And you're like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Ron went up in the attic and he was like, it was like being in this wonderland of rev stuff, like the rarest, craziest stuff. It's just up in this guy's attic, but it was like being in a sweltering oven. And, it, and Dave was like, I guess Ron came down and was like, hey, Jordan, like, do you think you should have those records up there, it's too hot? And that you were like, oh, really? Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> It wasn't that big a deal to you. And Rob was like, oh my God. Yeah. And this is before Rev yeah. records are worth what they're
1: worth today, like all that early stuff. Um, I don't know if that's a true story, but I always it laugh is at true. It. I remember that was that was um off of uh I think it was off of Dixwell Avenue in Hamden, Connecticut. We rented a room from an engineering company that my friend's mom worked at mm-hmm. and he was like, Yeah, we don't use this room, a hundred bucks a month. And Um, and then like, I found the basement and I was like, can we use the basement? Yeah, no problem. Can we use the attic? Yeah, no problem. So I just, you know, put, I moved, I, I, I did try to live there for a little while, but they didn't like that. But I, I used their basement. We used the attic as storage. And, um, I think we kept the records for the most part in the basement. Um, but, and the print in the attic. But there was a time when we had too many shelter records, um, and so some of those went in the attic, mm-hmm. the brown vinyl. And uh, but it was actually I I I think it was not record warp hot. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes quite a bit of heat to make a record warp. And I learned this from a guy that worked at a record store in um, Georgia or, or or North Carolina. Anyway, one of the southern states. Um, <clears throat> We were buying, you know, I went on a road trip when I got my first car, a legal car, um, and we were buying rare records at the store, and the, and the guy that worked there, like, just took him, you know, August Sun and wherever we were, throws them in the trunk, and I was like, aren't these going to warp? And he's like, oh, no, uh, in the trunk, they're fine. If they're in where there's glass, they're going to warp. And that's been lifelong rule of thumb for mine, uh, oh. for me. And I never, unfortunately, now I have a, a Rav Four, which doesn't have a trunk, so I can't really leave records in my car um, anymore. Because there's, there's glass everywhere. There's there's no yeah, yeah. No trunk. All right.
0: So um, I, I just love that story though, because like I always thought of that story of uh, from being a record collector and like lo- like from a teenage years record collector. I always think of that like record collector mentality of like, good god, like what's gonna happen to these records? And Ron's like, oh yeah, George just seemed like not worried about it at all. Um, and this being the first time we've ever met, I always had this idea that you were just like a pretty like easygoing guy about stuff.
1: Like that'll yeah, be fine. Yeah, I am. Okay, <laughs> so well, when did you move to California and why? Um, oh, that's a, a an often told um, story for people that uh know me but um so when i was very little i i um i was like um I, I talked to my cousins who lived in california and i was like what's california like and you know i don't remember what they said but the weather was good so like i want to live somewhere where it's summer all year round mm-hmm. um they're like oh, i'll just move to california it's great right but where in california it's a big big state where what's a good place and they're like anywhere just go anywhere i don't know i was like well name a place and my cousin said huntington beach that's fine you know it's a good place and it just stuck in my head i was probably like you know 10 11 um maybe eight i don't know i was a little kid and many many years later purcell um was going to visit some friends in Huntington Beach, and he said, "Do you want to go with me?" He asked, you know, um, me and Jay Anarchy and a few other people, mm-hmm. um, if we wanted to go on like a two-week vacation with him. And I said, "Sure, yeah, I've never, you know, never been there." Um, and so I went out here and uh, I had a good time. I met uh, Greg and Jim Brown, and they became lifelong friends. and um and then a few months later uh, you know I was, um i i don't remember if my lease was up but uh, you know there's there was thought of moving like i don't need you know i, I had no particular re Ray was in the temple i had no particular reason to be in new haven you know i wasn't in college anymore i didn't have a job anymore so i was free mm-hmm. you know and so i talked to Siv and walter they were moving into a place in queens and i looked at an apartment there um and i don't remember what i was it just didn't seem logistically like you know i was comfortable with you know connecticut's parking and you know the pricing everything just was would have been easier in connecticut so i was like maybe i'll just stay in connecticut and then i just started thinking you know what i'm gonna move to you know i had a good time there and uh and i just decided to move out here so i called the people we stayed with can i stay with you for another couple of weeks i flew out found a a house to rent and um, arranged it all. And then a few months later, just rented a truck, put everything in there um, and drove out with some friends. So you move out, um,
0: Rev keeps going from here. At what point do you stop like essentially like picking the bands or having people bring the bands to you? At what point does someone else start kind of becoming responsible for what bands are going to be on the label?
1: oh yeah that would have been probably mid 90s um but already in the early 90s there was already people there who you know like everybody that worked at rev was into music as much or more than me Mm -hmm. you know dennis Remsing was you know popeye um who's a singer for far side and other bands um chris loman um steve reddy and you know mike madrid and greg brown everybody was either working there or hanging out there so you know the community sort of uh you know the scene you know provides information and 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 guidance um so that that kind of was part of it and um and at some point i was Um, maybe less willing to um, make the decisions or you know um, and John not sure who ran a label in Connecticut moved to to California and worked there and he helped a lot with um, guiding the label and um, a mutual friend of ours Beth who wrote all ages um, she worked there also and and they helped and um, and then in the mid to late 90s was when we we actually hired somebody just like, you know, your job is to, you know, talk to bands. At what point did you start the distribution part of Rev? Um, well, we we did a bit of it in the 80s, but it really started when um, Mike Hartsfield and Dennis Ramzing, you know, kind of moved into the area of huntington beach and um they had their labels and they you know one or both of them worked at rev occasionally dennis full-time and and mike occasionally and they were running their labels and we just started just distributing their their stuff and then um and then then we started just buying sst and other labels and um tried to become more of like a one-stop relevant music for us so it wasn't like an intentional like oh hey we
0: need another revenue stream here we're going to make this happen it just kind of naturally happened
1: yeah somebody i think somebody was like why don't we do this and i was like yes perfect you know it's interesting
0: because like the more i'm hearing about it like you know it's again when you look at something from a distance you're like oh they probably did this because of this because of this. Yeah, it was, it was like,
1: strategic. No, it wasn't strategic. <laughs> totally.
0: And like, especially as I've gotten older and I now I run a business, like I I, I kind of, I, I break things down more from like, oh, they must have been trying to create multiple revenue streams so that they could focus. Like they'd always have money to do the record label and not have to make s- bad choices.
1: Well, but obviously I'm... those conversations happen like as like um, the reasoning, right? but um, it wasn't like, revenue stream it wasn't a thought process and aha distribution it was like we should do distribute you know we're selling we're shipping these boxes let's put more stuff in those boxes that kind of thing dude it's so funny because like
0: when i break this stuff down it's like okay anything that i've ever done with any band it's not been this like "Hmm, what's the next strategic move it's like oh okay well we did that now this makes sense but when i'm in in like a business sense especially how i run my business now i'm always trying to think ahead because i have like a whole team that i have to make sure that you know, I can help grow and do this, do all this stuff. And then also like, I want to grow our business in a thoughtful way so we can do stuff effectively. So I, it's funny that as a punk, I usually just do things from the, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. But now as a business leader, I, I am a bit more like, okay, here's what the problem is. What's the solution. But if I put back in kind of like more punk thinking, it's more like, you're like, oh, here's the solution. Oh, and that actually kind of addresses this, this thing that we hadn't really thought of, but cool. Is that, that's kind of seems like the story of how Rev grew in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, well, again, water runs downhill, so um, that's most of what happens at Rev. Is either an an individual deciding this is what I want to do, so this is what we should do, Mm -hmm. or this just made sense and it fit. You know, it somehow fit in. Like Dennis worked at Rev full time; he had a label. He probably didn't have time to focus on his label, so why not just distribute through Rev? And going back to what you were saying earlier about like. rev like you you actually didn't say this but i feel like verbal assault youth of today uniform choice a handful of bands um carried the torch from the revolution summer kind of like progression era hardcore into like the mid 80s or to the late 80s and then when rev was doing quicksand and into another and stuff then there was like um, new Age and conversion, kind of carrying the torch, and 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 then and Bridge Nine, you know, every label kind of like is part of the evolution of, of this, the scene, and and I kind of feel like certain some labels are are closer to the, you know, the strict definition, and and some labels are, uh, you know, further away from what what Ray's you know and Ray's concept of hardcore is what i adopted so right, like right. um I, I apologize to people that that don't see see it the same but um anyway i feel like conversion and new age were very um in the same spirit um and and almost taste as as what um today was was doing so yeah, um okay. they i really even though i wasn't listening to that type of music at that point in my life i appreciated what they were, what they were going through and doing with their bands and their labels. Yeah. It, it's interesting for me when you're saying that, cause like <laughs>
0: conversion was like Rev was like a generation of kids that were like older than me, Were um, like the the core bands where, um, new age and conversion were more kids around my age. Yeah. And so like, that was kind of like, or maybe even just slightly older, you know, but like new age. Uh, I talk a lot with my friends about like how important New Age was, and of course conversion as well. So huge shout out to Mike and, and Dennis. Uh, thanks for, for everything. Another thing you mentioned to me uh, in email that I made me laugh, and it, I want to bring it back later on uh, to something I would read in Beth's book. Um, but you mentioned like you know I kind of view myself almost more like an accountant than, than like really being like quote unquote a, a leader at this point. So if I think of someone like John, who played this role, uh, who else has played like a, a role in kind of forming what Rev continues to become?
1: Yeah, um, a lot of people in the '90s and and the early 2000s. Like we had a lot of people for a while, um, and I think this is something that I talked about with you on the phone, maybe. But there was a time when we had something like 18 or 20 people, and it was um, a little out of my Ability it was beyond my ability to to really communicate and keep uh, keep Be a good boss or manager of that many people so When things have been, you know, things are, are smaller now and, and I find it more manageable And I think people are happier than now than they were then not that everybody is super happy, but you know It's it's a job for a lot of people um, but uh, yeah, I tend to uh, take care. You know, I, I have a hard time delegating. I'm not a good time manager. So I, I end up um, needing help from people that have skills that I don't. And I've been lucky to find people like uh, over the years, like John and um, Beth and, you know, Steve Reddy, Dennis Remsing in the early days. Um, and then later on, we, we've had people that have really. Uh, been uh helpful for years or decades so i know i know uh really played like
0: did a lot of almost like label management like would you almost say like Vic was like the label manager
1: i mean i don't know i we don't have we don't have titles but um she handled a lot of um accounting and you know relationships you know she maintained relationships with um people that she liked and you know she knows a lot more people than i do so you know she and she's way faster than me um i I went one time i did a a test where um i asked her to do something uh, an accounting thing and i did it and i was like hey could you do this and just time how long it takes you it took me an hour and 40 minutes it took her 20 minutes oh yeah and um yeah and now there's there's uh so um our uh, another um person that works at rev is uh valerie and she is you know as fast as as vic and or maybe faster um and that's been incredibly helpful totally so you got these characters
0: that have done this stuff and i guess shout out to vic, yeah,
1: and did we mention adam lance well,
0: yeah well I, we did i'm gonna go back to him right now okay so like shout out to vic um I I know that Thick's not with the label anymore, but it a huge impact on our culture and our scene. So thank you for everything you've done and continue to do. Adam Lentz, uh, a guy that I've known forever and has definitely played like a pretty major role in Rev now for 20 years. He's been with the label for 20
1: years. Yep. He just um, he just celebrated or lamented his 20th anniversary <laughs> with us. Um yeah, we're still we gave him a um a chrome stapler engraved with, uh, yeah, <laughs> 10 years of serving, uh, something like for 10 years in service of hardcore something like that. Um, and I'm, I was trying to find a gold plated one for his 20th mm-hmm. anniversary, but I could not find it. It doesn't exist, apparently. Really? There's not a market for gold plated staplers? <laughs> yeah. I, I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we got to, I got to figure out something to do. I I made, I made, um, homemade Stromboli for him and Greg Brown. They, they both had, uh, 20 year anniversaries around the same time. And Tom, our graphic designer has been there for 20 years also. Wow.
0: That's wild.
1: Um, so you've got these people and of course we got to mention
0: Sam as well, who, um, you know, helped set up this interview and played in in a ton of really important bands. Um, so if you think of like Adam or Sam, what role do they play in in the organization now or the company now or rev, whatever?
1: Yeah. I mean, we still don't really have titles, which Sammy is annoyed with, but, um, you know, Adam kind of does a bit of everything and he started out doing, I think maybe sales and, but he, you know, he is like, uh, one of those people that loves hardcore and and listens to new hardcore Mm -hmm. and he's, he's signed bands and. Um, he talks to all the labels, and you know he's one of those people that can get along with people that uh, most people can't get along with. You know, he's put out a lot of bands that he really likes, and carries a lot of music that he likes. Well, and now at his request, let's say some nice things about Sam. What is, what is Sam? What oh Sam yeah, and Sam. And so Sam started a couple, two, a little, oh, maybe two years ago, where he he was calling, um, and just had advice like why don't you do this or why don't why doesn't rev do this and eventually i i thought it would be good to to hire him um i think he was like his company was moving or he, he was losing a job or quitting i don't know somehow he had the opportunity to work at rev um so um that's that's what uh happened and um he's he's really good at um kind of like fishing the filtering the muddy ideas into like refining them into some clarity for me because i'm i'm sort of terrible at, at organizing time or and thoughts and everything and uh i i've noticed like we we could have a meeting where everybody's talking and uh and we're all saying different things, and we all have all these ideas, and then Sammy just will say something like, uh, oh, well, why don't we do this, this, and this? And it's like, everybody is like uh, everybody's suggestion is somehow fit into this very simple you know, thing that Sam came up with. And he's just really good at um, organizing uh, a bunch of cats, with ideas into like a cohesive plan. And that's something I've never been really good at. Uh, You know, I'm not a great listener. I'm not a great uh, organizer, as I said, and and he's, he's really good at at that stuff. And um, so yeah, that's, that's been, that's been helpful because I I might've mentioned to you, like, I I spend so much of my time on administrative tasks. it's, It's hard for me to look up and see where we're going, you know, as far as like, looking six months down the road what what we should be trying to do yeah yeah um so that leads (laughs) me to
0: something i'm real curious about um and i want to ask it in two ways so the first is like again when that book uh, all ages reflections on straight edge came out like i like any other hardcore kid at the time was like holy crap there's a book about our scene and at that time there really wasn't that and i was reading all these interviews and just like drinking up every single word like it was gospel. But I remember you reading yours and being so blown away. I think one of the questions was like, are you happy? Like, are you happy with, with Rev and what you've done? And I think your answer, and I'm gonna to totally it here, was like, I don't know, there's a lot, of, a lot of better things people could have done with their time than do a punk record label. And I was like, <gasps>
1: oh
0: my God. So I read that and I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, but I think it was something like that. Um, are you happy with with your career path and, and what you've done? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, what's funny is I, I've gone through periods where I felt like I was doing harm to the environment. Like, we're just selling plastic records. Like, nobody needs records anymore, you know, and um, being down about it. But um, And then I went through a period where I felt like, uh, well, at least if if all we're doing is getting, you know, the some vegetarian songs out and making some people consider being vegetarian, like that's enough, you know, that's that's impacting the world in a positive way. But, um, you know, now now starting to think about it is like, you know, raise you know, the ideas that are in the lyrics, you know, in my case, particularly raise ideas, I think, are, are really positive for for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that need to hear it and also, the, you know, the the art and the music that came out of um, a lot of, uh, you know, the stuff that we put out is, is valuable and, and, you know, we don't have to be, you know, making cures for cancer to be helping, you know, people. So um, that's, that, that's how I uh, rationalize or tell my, you know, Feel good about what what I do. Yeah, uh, there's, <clears throat> in terms of like social impact, Youth of Today
0: and and like the vegetarianism that was attached to attached to them and that like spread out, um, and the role that Rev has had from like a social impact point of view is like there are people who are vegetarian and they don't even realize they're vegetarian or vegan because of Ray Capo. It's like maybe their friend got into it from Youth of Today or from like a Rev band. And then they got someone else into it, and that person got someone else into it. And then there's this person who's like, maybe their favorite band's The Who, but they're vegetarian and they don't realize that train of thought, um, that ripple effect. And I'd say, like, you know, like, obviously, I'm a big fan of the label, but also just from like pragmatically being a person who's involved in um, social services and being involved in um, what I hope is a company now that's useful to the world. All it takes is someone to be able to talk about something courageously and cohesively in like a good voice, a strong voice and be consistent to like change one mind, not one mind can change 10 minds to a hundred minds. I think it, I think what Rev has done, at least for, for me, from a like cultural forming standpoint and kind of like pushing thinking has been pretty significant. And I, I love to hear that you're, you know you're feeling the same about it but that does lead me to my next question you did return to school later
1: in life so what was behind that oh wow yeah i that's funny i forgot about it it's been so long um but uh i f- i remember i was sitting at my desk one day and um and i was doing some accounting thing or you know some little bit of math And I noticed that I was struggling with it and I was like this, you know, like I feel that, you know, this problem does not deserve this pain. You know, like there's something going on here. Like I'm losing some brain cells or something like I'm, I'm, what do you call it? I'm atrophying. Um, So I, um, a few years earlier I had, um, we had a college graduate working at, at Rev as a data entry guy, his name happens to be Greg Brown. Also, the the Greg Brown that kind of inspired me to move to California. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was saying to him, like, well, if you're gonna do data entry, you know, we need an accountant. Why don't you just take a couple of accounting courses, and you know, then you can be our accountant. You don't have to just like do data entry. You can do like the job of that we're hiring other people to do. And you'll get paid more, or whatever. You'll have a real, you know, career money instead of, um, and you can transfer that knowledge. Like entering um, five Gorilla Biscuits records, ten Judge whatever, into a into a computer. That's giving you no real benefit. So um, I talked him into going to the. There's a community college across, sort of across. Across from Rev, and we, uh, you know, I talked him into going, but only on the condition that I would take the course too. So uh, we we signed up for the accounting class. We bought one book, and <laughs> we we're going to share it. And ultimately, he was like, "I'm not doing this," and he stopped going. And I just kept going, mm-hmm. and um, and I actually found it really useful, almost more useful than my full degree that I got later. Um, but that one or two accounting courses i took really helped me with understanding what what was going on with revelation and why i that's sort of why i do the bookkeeping now because it's actually one of those things where i i understand what's happening like i can't explain to you how one needle dropped onto a record can make two different sounds come out uh, of two different speakers you know one needle two how's that working Mm -hmm. um i've had it explained to me but i don't you know, I still don't really understand, but I I can I understand that the bookkeeping now, thanks to this, this course I took at, at uh, Golden West College. Anyway, so a couple years later, I was doing something and um, I was struggling with something and I felt like my brain was was getting uh, mushy and I thought oh, I should just take some classes and, you know, sharpen up. So I took calculus and some stuff. That I'd already taken, but just to like get back um, on track, I took a, you know C plus plus some some programming classes, and um, and after a couple of um, semesters, I thought, oh, I wonder if I can like cobble together the the college that I took in Connecticut and the classes I took here into a degree, and so I asked, and they and they said, yeah, well he, you know, you, all you need is one more class and you can transfer into the university or, you know, local university. So I took, finished that class. I signed up for the university. And then sadly, it took another three years of full time at that school to get my degree. I, I didn't have to retake classes, but somehow the, the three years I had in Connecticut, the one year I or two years I had it. Three years at community college, three years in Connecticut, and then I still had to do three full time years at UC Irvine to get my bachelor's degree. But yeah. I did. But like, oh, why? Weeks before my uh, 40th birthday. Um, oh, so the reason I went to school is because I I thought my brain's getting mush. Yeah, yeah, And then I don't know why I just thought like it would be good to know yeah. so you know computer science degree. It would be helpful, yeah. and it was. I like I've. I've written software now for Rev that helps, you know, there's a job that Vic used to spend um, something like 12 or 14 hours a month on, and now it's done in like four seconds. I'm going to ask
0: you some tough questions. Um, How tough? Pretty tough. You can tell me if you don't want to do them, though. Okay. Um, So earlier in our conversation, you're kind of talking about the stupid system that we're all stuck in, right? And like our parents help voice it up, and, you know, as we become adults, we get... There's parts of it that we play into and we kind of have to. There's parts of it that we can avoid. Um, you, you seem to me to really care about doing things differently or having some kind of social impact. On the flip side, when you are running a punk record label and you don't have employees, you don't have to do anything, uh, like you're not responsible to anyone, you can make all sorts of decisions but then compromise can set in when a business has employees and you do have to like make money to keep the lights on and everything. Um, what's been the push and pull for you around, um, compromise, compromising your ideals and doing what you want to do versus what you feel you need to do to keep the lights on.
1: That might be more complicated of a question than I can even come up with an answer for, but I would say we, you know, there are things we have done. Uh, I see what you're saying. Like uh, this could be tough in the sense that you you might have to admit that you did something that you didn't love just because it would make money or something. Like, well, you know, I'm not asking you. To, I'm not asking you to do <clears throat> that. But like, things become more
0: complex when you have to people pay people's paychecks, right? And like, one of uh, the way I'll frame up the question is, Chris from Bridge and Records does a t-shirt company called Sell These Tees. And when I was putting out records, when I was younger, I asked Chris, um, Hey, how come you don't do bridge nine as you're living? Like to how you make money. Cause that seems like the dream job to me. And he was like, Oh no. And he's like, if I, if I drew all of my money from bridge nine, then I would have to start making some decisions on what would sell versus what I want to do. That's awesome. And he's like, I don't want to be in that position. I just want to put out records that I like putting out for my friends. And if it blow and if they blow up and they're great, awesome. If they don't, no big deal, but I'll always draw my money from Sully's. And he stayed true to that and whether or not someone likes or dislikes bridge nine or like likes likes or dislikes that answer, that guy has made a distinct choice to not try and eke out a living on that because of that ethical concern. I thought it was a real interesting answer.
1: Yeah, I, I. I don't have uh, a conscious answer like that, but I I can I can explain that we've got gorilla biscuits. Mm-hmm. That's that it, it may not be Sully's, but it it really frees us up to not. And I don't and I don't just mean gorilla biscuits. Like gorilla Biscuit, Chief of today, Judge Texas is the reason. You know, we have a handful of of bands that I look at as like they are these fires that. You really just need to keep them going. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to go out on their own. There, it, it doesn't take a genius to to run a label when you have uh, Gorilla Biscuits start today and use it today, to break down the walls, and and other great records like that that people love. So, that has given us this freedom to not do, you know, like I've thought at, at Rev 150. I was like, maybe 150 should be where we stop putting out new stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's just keep pressing the old stuff. Yeah and thankfully we you know i didn't <laughs> thankfully people didn't listen to me right. and they were like well how about one more i got this band and you know so adam basically kept the label going from from then um and uh so i i, I think that answers your question totally like we, we've we, we definitely have done things where just like i don't love putting out Five different colors of i i personally don't like putting out multiple colors of records but the bands want it we do it it makes extra money you know you i can't play? complain but and that's a perp that
0: everything you just said there is perfect and like so i love that so like the the bands you mentioned these are like forever bands they're they're bands that i think or i think every generation will be like oh i have to get that gorilla biscuits record is beyond a classic i actually think the importance of that gorilla biscuits record it hasn't even really been Um, Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I think like that, that record to me becomes more relevant culturally and also musically over time where you see like what a rare moment that was to be able to capture that lightning in a bottle. But you have all of these like forever records essentially that I think forever will carry on to generations. So that gives you kind of like a, an ability to be like, okay, because we have that financial base, it allows us to have a little bit more freedom to do other things. And although we don't particularly, here's a, here's a compromise. I don't love, um, pressing out tons of different colors of vinyl, but I know the bands want it. And I know by doing that, it allows us to loosen things up so that we can do other things. That to me is like, that speaks to compromise, a strong business compromise. And it's also like, goal. Cool. Like, it, I think it's like an ethically sound thing, but I like the thought process behind it.
1: Yeah. And that, I, I, and I don't mean to sound, uh, cocky about it. Cause there's definitely, you know, there's no guarantee. And that even, you know, Grill Biscuits is a small band in the grand scheme of things, but in our universe, it's huge. Mm. And there's no guarantee that even that um, will keep selling. It's just I've I've kind of gotten extra confidence in the last two years because I'm sure you're you're aware COVID has sort of boosted all online business and and also our distribution. Adam has done um, an amazing job bringing in labels and stuff that I'm you know I may or may not have even heard of some of these records and I'm doing the postage and I was like. We're shipping a hundred of these today, you know. Like, um, and so, uh, assuming people's interest in records continues, um, I think we will be okay, and we won't have to make some hard decisions. But we've gone through slope, you know. Revelations always been fairly stable, and I've been very careful about, uh, you know, almost pathologically cheap, and tr- in trying to keep costs down. Um, but we, you know, in 2008 was one of the first times we started. So, like, we we had uh, that economic downturn, and we were negative for a couple of years. And you know, I wasn't too worried, but I was a little like, all right, maybe we need to cut days or pay, you know, furloughs and all that stuff. And at the first week of COVID, before we knew it was going to be um, a bet, you know, a benefit to some businesses, I was worried we were going to disappear. So we did like, okay, well, everyone's gonna work from home or do furloughs until we're allowed to work again. And we did that for a very short period of time before we were allowed, you know, they opened up wholesale and we were allowed to the essential people to come back in the office.
0: Um, all right. I have just a few more questions for you. Is there anything that you want to talk about before we start heading
1: towards the end? Uh, yeah, just congratulations again to, uh, Adam, Greg, Tom for 20 years of, uh, helping and, uh, Check out the new bands that everyone's been working on. Praise, Dare, Be Well, Drain. Um, there's a lot of good stuff that that uh, Adam and Sam and everyone have been putting together. Oh yeah. Um, okay. Um, is there an end to Rev? I don't think so. I mean, I, my hope is that. Uh, we we'll, we're going to structure things in a way that'll continue with with, with or without me. You know, like um, it already functions pretty well, and I think if we um, made a few small changes, uh, I think it could it could be an ongoing thing, even without you know an owner kind of thing. Um, oh, and another person <laughs> I, I really should mention is uh, Jenny. Um, Varley has, um, she's been working at Rev for not 20 years, but a long time. And, um, since, uh, Vic left, uh, has taken on more and more, um, of the kind of time management and uh, off of my plate and production and, and stuff that, that Vic used to do. Um, I had a real hard time once Rainbow went out of business. Rainbow is a pressing plant that that did all our records and CDs for 30 years. And um, when they went out of business, um, it got very chaotic for me. And um, and Jenny has, has really helped uh, organize that. She's one of those people that is way, way more organized than me and and has been um, helping keep things going. and. Uh, and growing actually. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen the, the records that have been coming in, but they're like really, they're nicely done and the colors are good and things are going yeah. pretty well. I, I think current day Rev <laughs> is, and I,
0: I, I say this, I pay this as a compliment and I hope it only comes across the whole crew. It's the mo- most cohesive I've seen Rev in a while. I think as you said, Revs had like up and down periods. And I really feel like we're in an up period where there's like a cohesiveness to how things look, how they're coming out, the marketing of it. Um, The bands obviously don't all sound the same, but it makes sense being on the same makes sense being on the same record label. Um, Rev right now feels like kind of like in a in a new spring. And it's been really cool to see, obviously, because it's a great label and it, it means a lot to people. But it also feels like it feels like you've got a group of bands and a group of people behind those bands that really care. And are pushing, and it's nice to see
1: with the label that's got so much history. Yeah, I, I'm really happy with the way um, Adam and you know, and Jenny does a lot of the marketing too. So Sam and Jenny do a lot together, and and uh, and Adam has been doing all, all of the distribution and picking bands. So it's been it's been really good um, for you know quite a while, but the last two years have been a big boost too. All right. um, Another tough question, but maybe this is an easy
0: question for you. Uh, Historically, across the whole history of Rev, were there any releases that you wanted to do that you didn't get to do that actually like you were like, ah, that really bothered me. I didn't get that
1: one. Um, There probably are. And I I can't remember. There's so many that there's that that I can't remember them. And there's one that we we used to joke about because the band got so big, but um, I don't, this isn't announced yet, but they're going to finally be doing a record on Rev, like as a, you know, like for fun and as, as a favor to us and it's something that works for them. Um, so that's kind of cool, but I, you know, I've gone through my demo boxes of stuff that I never got around, like, I'm going to listen to this. And then I go back and look at it years later. It's like, good riddance, send us a demo. (laughs) (laughs) like, what is wrong with me? Um, but uh, so I can't think of anything specifically um, in the past, really off the top of my head. Um, but I know there is some stuff coming that we missed out on that is going to be big. Right. Um, but you'll you'll hear about that from another label that we all know and love. So okay, what's one
0: thing as a business person, and it doesn't have to be leadership, but just as a business person, that you really feel good about, like, you're like, yeah, I got this. And it doesn't mean you can't get better at it, but like, what's something as a business person, you're like, I'm really good at that. And then what's something as a business person, you know, you're not good at and you're constantly trying to get better at it. At least you're putting effort into trying to get better at
1: it. Yeah, it's kind of a boring answer, but I'm really good at cutting costs, find you know, finding the, uh, the most, uh, you know, I just have like a sense of, I, I think I have a sense of how to analyze uh costs uh, pretty well but that is probably annoying for the people that work with us because they really don't want to think about that 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 shouldn't a lot of people don't think that should be the focus and they're probably right but anyway I, I feel like as a business owner you do have to watch your costs and i feel like i'm pretty good at keeping costs uh down um probably too much and then um what's the other what's one that? thing that you know you're not good at oh yeah that's on? time management and yeah. delegation. Yeah. You know, I'm a control freak that moves like the, the pace of a snail. So bad combo. Okay. But thankfully, there are other people that uh, work around me. They're, they run circles around me and just uh, you keep going, Jordan. Oh, um, and again, like, dude, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm
0: pinned into a corner on this, but just out of interest, like, you know, you, you grew up or you came up with hardcore being a huge part of your life and people like evolve and change and they grow um out of the rev catalog are there any three records that you could think of that you actually listen to today like you spend time listening to
1: i listen to you know i hear a lot of them because they get played a lot um but i also mean historically any
0: of the ones like even the ones early releases like do you ever like throw on like a side-by-side seven-inch kind of thing like
1: yeah um and it's more songs than than records that strike me and um there's a particular side-by-side song where uh, you know it's "Living a Lie," mm-hmm. where uh, Jules yells "Alex," and then this like, you know, totally trebly guitar comes in, and uh, I just love, you know, I love Alex, and I just love hearing, uh, you know, him get called out on a record, and that Gorilla Biscuit song where you can hear Alex's voice, that um, you know the biscuit power, um, that's like, you know, you can hear Armand's voice, you know. Like, Armand sang in um, "Rest in Pieces," so you you can hear Armand's voice. But he's in sick of it all. He's just, you know, always behind the drums, Mm -hmm. so you never hear his voice. But you can you can hear Armand on that song too, and Alex and a couple other people that you don't like, Luke. I think you can hear his voice. Like Luke, never as far as I know has never sang in a band. Mm -hmm. You don't hear his voice isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a fun thing for me to listen to. But yeah, there's a lot of records that I I put on like, and. Maybe not on Revelation, but our friends' bands. Like over the time, I feel like the Quicksand albums have held up so well that, like, I could see them lasting. Like you know, outside breaking the genre that that we think of Quicksand as, like, kind of hardcore related. But I feel like they are uh, they're kind of uh, in their own category. Yeah. Um... Unrelated, but like Walter, who's
0: someone I I just know in passing, but has always been very super kind and really accommodating. Um, There wouldn't be a change LP without Walter, uh, which is a band that I play now. Um, That's a story for another time, but kind of gave me some crucial feedback at a time when I really needed it. And then uh, it was cool to be able to send to the record when it was done. So um, yeah, quicksand. They're, they're a band for the ages, a forever band as I call it. All right man, well listen, we're at the end. Uh, first of all, I just wanna say something and it's something that made me wanna interview you in the first place. Um, you really care about your friends and you really care about like the, the people that you came up with and it's so obvious when you talk about it. And So when I think about Rev, I guess the ideas that I had about Rev when I was a little kid really seem to still hold true and just being about like a community of people that look out for each other like care about creating cool things that make a difference. And this conversation is that stood out to me again, I do not put words in your mouth, but that's what it's leaving me with. Um, as we're closing off, anything that you want to shout out, where can people find you look into your stuff, rev or anything else you want to share? Um, yeah, rev,
1: you know, you can always look at Reveille. We don't even have a website now. It's just our online store, but, um, you know, social media, we have some posts and all the usual places. Um, yeah. Um, thanks for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I don't talk to Ray as often as I, I would like to, cause he's su- super busy, but mm-hmm. I do every time I, I hear him talking on one of his podcasts or posts, it's like, guys, great. So yeah, I, I do hope you get to interview him. That would be uh, that it, listening to your previous episode. It, it seems like it would fit well with the kinds of things you talk about, you know, well, I just appreciate you coming on because I know you're a little hesitant and uh, I just
0: you're awesome. man. this is a very, very cool conversation and super meaningful for me that you're here. So thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So uh, everyone, I'll see you in the outro. And Spencer, drop the beat. That was a cool conversation. You know, it's it's an interesting thing growing up in a scene that is like this weird microcosm. It's big, like there's thousands of people into it across the world, but it it is still relatively small if you think about how big the world is. So you grow up in this little scene and there are things to you that that inform how you engage in things. And I guess like the, the way I talk about it is like, Walking around in the Youth of Today shirt made me feel like a little bit less alone as a kid. The same way walking around in like a Pal Peralta shirt would make me feel, or the same way that walking around in a Minor Threat shirt would make me feel. Like that kind of thing where it's like a secret thing that you and your friends believe in that gives you a guiding light in the distance. And so talking to someone like Jordan and talking about like the business side of it is interesting to me because yeah, like I, I care about how businesses are run and I want to bring that up. I love that idea that like leadership doesn't always have to be the super, like I'm the leader active space that you can actually just be more in the background and that you can surround yourself with people who are willing to put their hands in the wheel and you just guide from the background and just put those right people in, in, the, in the space. Rev's success over the years is like, um, without question, in my opinion. Their cultural impact, huge, and their ability to still pull out like super cool, relevant bands now is amazing. So if there's anything I want people to to take away is you don't have to have some grand vision. You don't have to have like this, like, I'm taking the leap, I know exactly what I'm doing. You can do what I think Jordan said so beautifully is let the work guide you, let the ideas guide you, let the relationships guide you. And eventually you can build up something that serves a community that, that makes a difference. And you can do it just by following Um, by following the work so with that everyone uh, if you haven't yet please rate review and subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time i'm aram arslanian and this is One one
1: step